Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we are going to dive deep into Flea Mortals by MCDM. Great big Kickstarter, great big book. It is, it's come out, you can pick it up, and we're going to talk all about it. We're also going to dive into the last batch of Patreon questions from the September 2023 Patreon Q&A, breaking those up into topics like things like monster. We're going to talk about legendary monsters and how those work. We're going to talk about investing in VTTs, where you should put your money when you're investing in VTTs. And we're going to have a whole bunch of Patreon questions about how to tips and tricks for running your game. All today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of great exclusive features, the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, the Patreon Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, a bunch of exclusive adventures, a bunch of tools, a whole lot of stuff you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. It's really a good deal. You should check that out. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So yes, today we are going to focus most of our show on the book Flea Mortals, a great big book from a great big Kickstarter from a great big company, MCDM. We're going to talk all about it. We're going to dive into it. I spent a good deal of yesterday reading through it, looking through it, getting my notes together, getting lots of talk, uh, getting all ideas for this talk together so that we could dive in. First, a couple of disclaimers. A, I wrote for this and was paid to write for it. So I have at least two, I think there's two big chunks of this, big chunks. There are two pieces of this book that I was paid one as a consultant and one for actual design work. So can you trust me to offer a completely unbiased uh, report? No, you cannot. The other one is it was the lead designer for this is my very good friend, James Intercasso. He is the real mastermind behind this book. And I love James to death. So obviously I'm going to be biased in that regard too. However, I want to offer a good, clear view of, of what kind of stuff is in this book, because it is really a big powerhouse, big powerhouse book. I put together some notes for my talk here today. I was, I was thinking about it a lot. I was talking about it on the Sly Flourish Discord server and writing my own notes and ended up writing like basically an article, but I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm, I'm using this for myself to give you some thoughts. First of all, is it a good book? Hell yes, it's a good book. It's a really, really good monster book. Definitely one of the best monster books that exists for 5e, maybe in the top two of best books for monster for monster books. It's really, really well put together. Most importantly, I would say it is the very likely the best play tested book of monsters for fifth edition, bar none better play tested than the monster manual the 2014 monster manual it will probably be better play tested than the 2024 monster manual we don't know exactly what kind of play testing they're going to do but one thing i know about mcdm their play test process is huge they have paid play testers they have a full-time play test coordinator and they have hundreds of play testers who dive into these things have tried them out try them in their game offer feedback that feedback is taken in a huge part of the development of flea mortals was focused on that play testing which is particularly important for monster books because you want to know that those monsters are going to run well so they definitely do and they definitely are well tested probably that that's probably the number one thing that this book brings that other monster books don't bring is that playtesting. However, there are a lot of features of, of Flea Mortals that also make it stand out among other monster books. And we're going to talk about that. One thing was during the Kickstarter, it was sort of advertised 
as a replacement to the monster manual. That the idea was that you really only needed flea mortals and you could run your D&D game. That's kind of true, but not really. And the reason why it's not really true is there are many monsters in the monster manual that aren't included in flea mortals. And flea mortals has many, many monsters that are only included in flea mortals. They're not available anywhere else. So it's not replacing the monsters of the monster manual. It is another book of monsters that has many monsters that are parallel to the monsters you the core monsters you would find for fifth edition but their own take on it an example is there are like eight different kobolds in here well the original monster manual didn't have eight different kobolds it has its own take on dragons its own take on demons its own take on devils that does not have a hezro it doesn't have a marilith it doesn't have a balor they're they are not direct replacements for all the monsters that you would find in a monster book i find this to be a far better supplementary monster monster book then i think it fits as a replacement to the monster book and for like one example is if you were to buy a published adventure and look through that adventure and look for monsters that are bolded the expectation is that the monster manual has that monster in it at that challenge level you you couldn't find that monster necessarily in flea mortals and if you did you wouldn't necessarily know which version of it you're looking at and you don't know that the challenge rating is right and anything like that so it is far more of a parallel supplementary book to whatever your main monster book is then it is a full replacement. An example of a full replacement book is the Level Up Advanced 5e Monstrous Menagerie, which was my favorite book of 2022. I adore this book. My wife asked me yesterday, we were talking all about this, and she goes, when was the last time you used the actual monster manual? And I was like, I can't think back, because anytime I would, I'd use the Monstrous Menagerie instead. So I love the Monstrous Menagerie, and that one is a direct replacement for the Monster Manual. It does have basically every monster. There's only a handful of the ones that were not released under the under the uh, open gaming license that are not in it, but that's very, very small compared to the amount of monsters that aren't in Flea Mortals. So I think that the Level Up Advanced 5e Monstrous Menagerie, side by side with Flea Mortals, gives you a tremendous number of monsters and a lot of details. So what is this book about in the kickstarter matt colville had a core premise to this book which was 5e monsters are boring if you agree with that statement that 5e monsters by and large are generally boring and you're looking for more advanced monsters that do more things in combat that have more crunchy chewy mechanics for tactical combat Flea Mortals is for you because Flea Mortals definitely takes a lot of fourth edition style principles, things like minions, solo monsters, different monster types, and a lot of other sort of features that Matt Colville likes, that James Ender Castle likes for that, that exist for fourth edition monster design and brings that to fifth edition and has all of those ideas. And we'll, we'll get into some of the details on this. The idea that monsters basically don't have just a linear power curve of challenge rating but also a horizontal power curve of minions standard monsters and in this case solo monsters it doesn't have like elite monsters elite monsters was another feature of fourth edition where you had some monsters that were essentially double the strength of a normal standard monster so this flea mortals attempts to create this sort of horizontal power increase along with your vertical power increase of challenge rating we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna dive into this we're gonna when we actually look at the book and we look at the monsters you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna see all this kind of all, all this kind of stuff but it is definitely what i would refer to as an opinionated monster book that if it, it's 
it's built on this idea that vanilla 5e monsters are boring and we want to soup them up we want to give them more abilities we want to create more types we want to have like those monster types is that you might have your soldiers and you might have your artillery and that way you can kind of piece together combat by using these monster types to determine how your how your battles play out it's a very very crunchy monster book that's really what it's built on this is a tactical crunchy monster book if you are the kind of dm the kind of gm who is looking who focuses a lot on what combat plays out like mechanically this book is for you if you're more of a loosey-goosey story-focused dm some people i know are more like that the loosey-goosey then it may not be for you because you might not want all of that super tactical crunchy stuff and be more interested in the flavor and what's going on in the story and how it plays out and that's where like i would compare uh, this is where i would compare flea mortals to forge of foes my own book that i worked on with scott gray and james and uh, scott gray and teo sabadia that we put a book together that has different degrees of complexity of monsters that you can create or modify and some of the most basic is use this one line of a step of a table and build a monster right off that and you really don't need to do anything else other than flavor it that's about as simple as monster design can be that's the idea of like trying to get monster design as simple as like what the cipher system does for numenera that can you just come up with a number a challenge rating and from that challenge rating determine its armor class attack bonus number of attacks the amount of damage it does and skip all of the rest that's your super simple monster type and then you flavor it in story but a lot of people don't want that. A lot of people think, no, I want the mechanics to fit the story. That if a monster has a has a description of what they're supposed to be in the world, I want to know that there's mechanical things that they do that reinforce that story. Some players, some GMs are really interested in that. Some aren't. I tend to lean towards, I, I'm good with the descriptions. I don't necessarily need mechanics to define the story of a monster. I can just do that by how I describe it in the game. This book is definitely on the mechanics feeding the story. Let's actually take a look at Flea Mortals. It is a 400-page book. It is a $40 PDF or a $70 hardcover in PDF. You're going to pay a fair bit for shipping, about $20 for shipping in the United States and more elsewhere. So this is not a cheap book. It is one of the more expensive monster books, one of the more expensive books that you will find for uh, fifth edition. So that is a consideration as well. Do you want to spend that kind of money on a book like this? I, I've talked to people who say that nah, it's, I like it, but it's a little pricey. That's a very reasonable assumption to make. I can't tell you whether it's worth it or not because the value of money is different from all of us. Was it worth it to me? Yes, but I spent tons and tons of time, tons of attention on this stuff. I did, I will say this. So I did get a pre, I did get a contributor copy of the book which I gave away because I also backed the Kickstarter. So I did back the Kickstarter. My own money went into this. So the book that I'm giving you is not a review copy. It was one that I actually paid for, paid for myself. It cannot be understated how good the artwork is. The artwork and the design and the layout and the physical construction of the physical book are excellent. The artwork is amazing. So really, really, you can tell, yes, it's expensive. 40 bucks for a PDF is a lot of money for a PDF. $70 plus shipping for a physical book is a lot of money for a physical book. But you know where that money went. When you look at this, nothing was cut from this book for cost. It is you know where that money went. It is a gorgeous looking book. Tremendous artwork. Really, really good design. Look at the size of this playtester group. And these are just alpha playtesters. I think they had more playtesters as well. Huge playtesting group. So really, when you look at it, you see 
that they where all of their energy went into this book and the quality of the book that you're getting for the for the money that you are so it groups up monsters by group type so you can see it has things like devils demons drag dragonets and this is where you, you can see creatures that you're like oh, i don't know what a dragonet is or light benders time raiders there's a lot of different kinds of monsters in here than you find from your standard fare of DD monsters so that's why i say it is not a direct replacement for the monster manual i just i don't think that that is an accurate portrayal of this book I mean, could you play with Justice Book? Sure, but you could play with any book, right? Any monster book could f fall into that category. But can you replace all of the existing monsters in the Monster Man with book monsters from this? I don't think so. A lot of them you can. Minotaurs, ogres, gnolls, kobolds, goblins, all of the standard fair monsters are, are pretty well covered. But there's probably, I would guess, I'm going to make this number up because I didn't actually look, maybe half of the monsters that are in uh, here are not monsters you would find in the Monster Manual and vice versa. It has a good big section on encounter building. We're going to talk about that a bit. It's got uh, a whole section on environments, about 40 pages worth of environments. We're going to dig into those, but environments are basically like looking at a general environmental location like caves or forests or graveyards and tombs or roads or ruin keeps. It has a map, but then it also has some monster stat blocks and some environment environment actions that can be taken that kind of turn these into living living environments environments that have a big sort of tactical play that's really interesting about 40 pages of villain parties i was kind of excited about this because i i think i was the first one to write a villain party for mcdm i wrote a villain party called the grim accord and that one got such positive feedback people really liked the grim accord so much that they ended up including eight other villain parties that you can drop into your uh, game i think that is uh, really neat and we'll we'll talk more about that so lots and lots of different stuff that you get in this book for for filled with with different things monster wise so you can you can see here where it talks about monster roles right creature roles each creature has a role listed their, their challenge level that are descriptive of spe specific types of combatants that they are in the battlefield ambushers artillery br brutes companions which is different controllers leaders minions retainers which again is a character focused one skirmishers soldiers solos and support and there's descriptions about what it means to be one of those different kinds of monsters but the idea is you have sort of plug and play monsters that if you have a few brutes up front and some artillery in the back you have a general idea of what that kind of combat is going to be like if you have a leader in the back and a bunch of minions and then some ambushers you know what that's going to be like you know how you can drop in different you know how you can drop in different monster types in order to have certain effects. Also, when you see groups of monsters like kobolds or goblins or bugbears or hobgoblins or gnolls, you can see how the range of those different monster types are connected to those stat blocks so you know which one you're going you're gonna to drop in. There's also two other, there's, there's, there's four other monster types worth mentioning that are kind of different than just the role that they take in combat, but also mechanically what they're like. And that is minions who are treated very differently from quote unquote standard monsters, solos who are likewise treated as different than standard monsters, retainers and companions. So I couldn't really figure out what the difference is between companions and retainers. A companion and retainer are essentially monster stat blocks that are intended to be journeying with and adventuring with the characters. So they'd be like 
Guinevar, Drizzt's cat, right? Or they would be like your buddy Bruce, who just goes with you, you know, he's, he's always Floyd, right? Floyd, who follows you on all of your adventures, smoking weed. He would be your retainer, right? And they have stat blocks that kind of match your character and follow along your character and act with your character. And there's rules for those. I'm not really bringing those into my game, so I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about retainers or companions, but there are definitely people who are interested in companions and retainers, and they have many different companion and retainer stat blocks that you can find in here that are the types of companions or retainers that your characters could pick up that would join them, that level up when they level up, that, that, that grow when they grow. Action-oriented monsters. This is a huge thing that Matt Colville brought to 5th edition in his original YouTube video where he talks about it. Obviously, it made a lot of sense to focus heavily on action-oriented creatures in Flea Mortals, and they do. Many, many of these solo monsters and villain villains and sometimes leaders have action-oriented ideas. These are similar to legendary actions, but they don't act exactly the same way. And essentially, they have three different power moves that those monsters can do. They can do them in any order, and they can only do one per turn, and they only can do it one per, per round. But the, and they can't do the same one, I don't think. It's a little, a little interesting. Sometimes I lose track of exactly what the rules are for exactly how villain actions work. And they do things like change mobility or let people move around. They can give orders to other creatures. They can, they can reposition themselves. They can do kind of, you know, battlefield control sort of things. And then they usually have one big one, the, the ultimate, the showstopper, which is the big thing that they do at the end of the battle that, that says, wow, we, we got them. This is going to be fine. Oh my God, they exploded. Right. And they explode outwards with all kinds of stuff. So I've, I've simplified this down when I think about villain actions, when I think about these action-oriented ideas, to positioning, repositioning, and exploding. That the first one kind of sets the battlefield, the second one repositions the battlefield, and the third one has the monster explode. But those, that's an oversimplification of how that works. And in many cases, when you look at the monsters, they can do different things based on the story of the monster. But you will find lots of these sort of action-oriented monsters, action-oriented traits for many of the big monsters uh, that you will find in this book. The other major difference that this book offers up are minions. Let me go to my minions. So minions in fifth edition are, is an interesting concept. A lot of people wondered how come there aren't minions in fifth edition to begin with. And one thing that is important to understand is how fifth edition is designed differently than a game like fourth. And that major difference is that it doesn't scale perfectly linearly. We've talked, if you've, if you've talked much about or heard much about fifth edition's design, you'll hear the phrase of like flat math, that it has flatter math. And the way to think about that is if you compare it to fourth edition or third edition or Pathfinder, other D20 fantasy roles, role-playing games, a lot of times those games, as the characters are leveling up, their power is increasing linearly. They're, they're getting like an attack bonus every level. Their armor class is going up every level. If you look at like monster stat blocks for Pathfinder, they get pretty ridiculous. You get like AC 40 creatures and stuff like that. And that's because there is a growth of the power curve of those monsters. And because it is a steeper power curve in those systems, it means that you can have monsters that scale not only along that same curve, but also horizontally, that you might have small monsters that are at a certain level, but they count as 
significantly fewer they, they, they you have more of those monsters per standard monster than you normally would it's a little tricky to understand but but i'll show you when we when we when we look at minions and how they operate here the thing is that because fifth edition has a flatter math curve instead of having minions you simply have monsters that are lower challenge rating so an example would be a skeleton a skeleton is a cr one quarter monster if you're facing it at level one it's danger level is a certain a certain amount that is basically like one skeleton is roughly equivalent to one character first level but when the characters are fifth level they can take on many more skeletons if they're tenth level they can take on many more skeletons and it's the same skeleton stat block that cr one quarter stat block doesn't change there isn't a cr 10 skeleton that is actually counts as a much weaker skeleton because the math doesn't have to scale that way in fourth edition if you look at some of the monsters like that what you'll find is they'll have different levels of the same monster and still have it be a minion. So you can have things like a level 28 minion, which is a weird idea. It's like, well, it's level 28. What does that mean? Shouldn't that mean it's really powerful? Well, no, it's not really powerful because it's also a minion. So this gets into this idea of basically monsters that scale horizontally and vertically. They scale up and down based on their challenge rating, but then they also scale horizontally by the type of monster they are, whether they are a minion, whether they're a normal monster, or they're like a solo monster. And the, the, so there's a whole set of minion rules that exist inside Flea Mortals, how it handles these large groups of monsters. And the way it handles them is that if a monster takes a hit or fails a saving throw against a damaging effect, it just instantly dies. You don't look at the hit points. You don't bother to figure out its hit points at all. It doesn't take damage. It just plain dies. That, but it still has hit points. And it has hit points for things. It's, you can essentially think of the hit points of a minion as a threshold of damage that it can take. Not if, it, if, it, if it's hit, it still dies. If it fails a saving throw against a damaging effect, it still dies. But if it takes like a magic missile, a magic missile might not kill it because the magic missile might not do enough damage to go over the threshold of the amount of hit points that that monster has. Same way if you have like high power monsters and they take a, an area of effect and the area of effect, if they make their saving throw, even if they take half damage, they might survive because the damage won't be enough to necessarily cross their threshold. So it's a different way of thinking about monster hit points. You also have this idea of overkill attacks, which is for melee people, when they're swinging an attack or even range attackers, when they're swinging and attacking a monster and they do enough damage to cross the threshold of that monster, it will hit the next monster in line. And if they cross it again, it'll hit the next monster in line. There's a fun diagram that they have in Flea Mortals. Uh, let me show that diagram a fun diagram that shows how overkill damage works that like you know here's an amount of damage that was inflicted to a minion but it didn't cross over its threshold therefore all three monsters are still alive in fact you don't even track the damage right you just when you do the damage it doesn't work but in this case because they did any damage and it was a su successful attack roll that first goblin dies but the next two are fine but let's say it does enough damage to cross over three two of the goblins it just barely touches the third that is still enough to kill all three goblins and all three goblins die so that is a that's how they handle minions now the important thing to under also the important thing to understand about minions is that they count as less of a monster by a significant amount so an idea is if you have a cr one quarter minion it counts five to one against a cr one quarter normal monster so anytime you were going to do your encounter balancing and you were going to figure out that you could drop in a CR one quarter monster, let's say again, like you were, you had your, let's say second level characters, you were going to drop a bunch of skeletons on them, but instead of normal CR one quarter skeletons, you wanted to use minions, you would drop in five one quarter 
one quarter minion monsters to account for every one one quarter normal monster. So it counts as five times and that goes up. It goes up to 10 at ninth level, it kind of scales up five to eight to, to, to 10. And at higher level, you get 10 minions per standard monster. For every CR9 monster you would normally use, you could replace it with 10 CR9 minions. And that's because players have much bigger ways of throwing lots of damage around, of making multiple attacks. They're gonna, they're gonna hew through these guys like crazy. And that's what minions are for, right? The whole purpose of minions is that you can run tons and tons of monsters against the characters, and they can hew through and cleave through those monsters, and you can have this big cinematic, big cinematic battles that's that's the intent i feel like there's a weird discrepancy with the idea that you have like minion fire giants who only have 18 hit points i i kind of have trouble getting my head around this idea like to me a fire giant is a fire giant that there aren't these like super weak fire giants that only have 18 hit points like an 18 hit point damage threshold it is certainly a way to throw a whole ton of fire giants at your at your group but does it really feel like you're fighting a whole bunch of fire giants if they're dropping that fast if they're dropping that quickly so i i don't feel like it works particularly well at higher levels where you have these great big monsters and the expectation is that well yeah but you have 10 of them like 10 fire giants for every one 10 fire giant minions for every fire giant normal creature feels weird to me somebody brought up also how the hell do you fit that on a battle battle mat yeah that's a good point so i i, I i'm i'm i think it's a really interesting idea and i think at lower crs it makes a lot of sense it's a it's a good idea i still like my own way better and you know i'm gonna of course like my own way better which is there are other ways that you can run the normal standard monster stat blocks and make them easy enough to run that you could run dozens to hundreds of them by things like the one quarter succeed rule which is anytime the creatures are making a number of attacks you can just assume a quarter of them succeed in in hitting and and arbitrate it that way there's also other tricks lazy dm's companion has a bunch of tricks for running lots of minions and the forge of foes also has ways to run giant hordes of monsters as well we have lots of different ways to do it and i kind of like mine better because i feel like a skeleton is a skeleton is a skeleton I don't feel like there's one kind of skeleton that should be five times less powerful than this other kind of skeleton when they both look like skeletons. Same way, particularly when we get into high challenge ratings. But check it out. I mean, it's, an, it's definitely an interesting way. And I know it was well-tested. James Intercastle and I talked a lot about it while I was going through the design of this idea. So it's been well thought out. It's been well-tested. It's been well-used and lots of people really love it. So that could definitely just be my, my bugaboo, that idea of like, why don't those fire giants feel like fire giants when they're dropping so fast? It has a good section that talks about encounter building and the kind of encounters that it talks about here, the encounter building rules that are used in here can actually be used across all of your monster books for all of 5th edition. It's not just tied to flea mortals. There is a section about how many encounters per day and building a budget of the kind of encounters per day. I'm not big into budgeting encounters per day. I feel like the number of encounters per day that should affect a group is whatever makes sense in the story. I don't like doing a bunch of math to figure out how many normal battles or hard battles or small battles they should face because I don't feel that attrition of power is my goal when I'm designing a game. I don't, I don't feel like my goal is to make sure that there's this constant continuing drawdown of the amount of energy that the characters have. I feel like they should rest when it makes sense to rest. I feel like they should face as many encounters as makes sense for the given story. So I don't tend to use that. But then there's also specific rules for determining encounters 
for the game itself. And when I first was reading this, I was like, wow, this is really good. In fact, looking at the math here, it fits very closely to the model that I use for the Lazy Encounter benchmark. It's a nice table that uses the Lazy Encounter benchmark. That's really good. And I was talking to James and he goes, you, you helped me write that. And I went, oh, I forgot because it was like two years ago. So I, James actually did bring me on as a consultant to help with how the encounter building rules could work in this. Uh, I didn't write them, but I, I offered, I offered uh, feedback to James, offered him ideas about how it worked, and, and it ended up in here, which is a really good, powerful table. This encounter CR per character is a really powerful table that, that scales with the number of characters and tells you, based on the number of characters, here's how, for, for an easy standard or hard battle, here's the number of essentially CR points that you can drop in and then you can pick the number of CR monsters to fit the total number of CR points based on the number of characters based on what you find here. You can also see what sort of the maximum is for the challenge rating of any particular monster before it gets sort of gonzo, before the monster is going to be so overpowered that it's, it, it will eat you no matter what the CR balance is. So really powerful table here, really, really useful and and you know fits along with the same kind of math that I think I like I I think it also fits very well with the with the what Paul Hughes uses in the level up 5e advanced level 5e monsters menagerie you're going to see these same kind of encounter building guidelines I've now seen a number of different groups that have come to the sort of the same general way to do it it will be very interested to see what wizards of the coast does with that when they're looking at the new when they're looking at the new rules for encounter building for the 2024 monster manual and the 2024 version of D&D. Flea Mortals also has in the book a, a table that lists all of the monsters by challenge rating and everything else. But one of the things they offer a free spreadsheet of all of the monsters that are in there that you can download to your own spreadsheet app or duplicate in, in, in Google Sheets so that you can then sort the monsters and figure out what monsters you want for all this kind of thing. I think it is really, really handy. I actually took it and threw it in my Notion notebook. So now I have a list of all of the Flea Mortals monsters alongside my other monsters from my other books that I can sort by challenge rating, that I can sort by monster type, and then I can see what page of what what book they came from so that way i have a way to use all of these different monsters from all of these different books in a nice clean and a nice clean layout but it's very very handy of them to include that spreadsheet and make it openly available they said they're going to update it as they as they need to update it and it's available to everybody it's linked in the book itself i'll add a link to that in the show notes so if you want to see the spreadsheet directly you can do so so where does flea mortal sit among monster books i said it is not necessarily a replacement for the monster manual that there are other books that are in fact we're going to have four different standard monster books available uh, in 2024. We're going to have the 2014 Monster Manual. We're going to have Level Up Advanced 5E's uh, Monstrous Menagerie. We're going to have Tales of the Valiant's Monster Vault. And we're going to have the 2024 Monster Manual. So we're going to have a big pile of different standard monster books. So uh, does another company really need to make something like that? I don't, I don't know. I mean, some might. We'll see. And especially when we have 10 years of experience building monsters, and many of us have different ideas about the way monsters should work, from very, very simple, from philosophies like mine, to more advanced, like you find in, in Flea Mortals. There's lots of room for this. So I don't know. But I do do know that this is not one of those replacements that this book is again an opinionated tactical book focused on monster tactics for your game that has many of its own monsters covers some of the monsters that you'd find in standard monster you know standard monsters that you'd find in 5e but also has many other types of monsters that are focused on their their ideas the ideas of mcdm now, one of the interesting things is I've talked about sort of the risk of uh, uh, non-Wizards of the Coast published 5e material and people's reliance on D reliance on D&D Beyond. I don't feel, I feel like unlike player options, 
in which there is definitely a big focus on, hey, if it's available in D&D Beyond, it's going to be used. If it's not in D&D Beyond, it won't. I don't feel like that exists for monster books because it's very easy to use a monster book digitally or in person just by using the book itself. If you have the PDF, a lot of people will like screenshot the stat block for the PDF. There's lots of different ways that you can run a monster in your home game uh, without necessarily needing to use D&D Beyond. So I don't think that it's a risk that I don't think D&D Beyond's focus on monsters is a risk to DMs using books like this, which is good because I think it's it's nice that whatever monster books I pick up, I can use. Now, you can get into this situation, I have too many monster books and you're like, I don't even know which book to look at. And I'm getting there where I have like three different tomes of beasts, the Creature Codex, the Monsters Menagerie, and now Flea Mortals. Those are like my main core books. And that's seven, six books or something like that. Luckily, I've got a big spreadsheet where I can go and look for particular monsters. And I might get an idea for it. I ran a vampire last week and I pulled the vampire out of Flea Mortals. That's the monster that I wrote for Flea Mortals. So I knew it well. And boy, did it run really well. So there's definitely times where I'm like, I think I'll use the monsters menagerie. Or I think I'll use Flea Mortals today for some of them. Oh, we're going to run gnolls. Let me run my gnolls from Flea Mortals. So you can sort of pluck the monsters out that you want to use when you want to use them. And I think that works really well. But there isn't this reliance on DD Beyond. I don't think DD Beyond has built a monopoly on monsters the same way DD Beyond has built a monopoly on character options, which I think is the real big issue with D&D Beyond right now. So it has a whole chapter on environments. Funny, it's chapter two and it starts on page 292. Again, beautiful artwork. And what they did is they talk about particular environments. They offer, this one's really gross. Look, what's that guy doing? That's not good. You don't want to be that dude. And it doesn't just have environments and maps for the environments. It also has stat blocks for particular monsters that fit that particular environment and it's got a handful of these about 40 pages worth of environments that it covers everything from like enchanted forests caves graves all sorts of things it's pretty standard environments and the monsters that sit in those environments so that's kind of a neat addition that you would not expect in a in a, in a typical monster typical not monster book i mentioned villain parties it's got eight villain parties in here of different challenge ratings, depending on what group, you, what, what challenge rating you want to run. Really cool artwork for them. This does get into something, and it's a question that I received, which is, if it is this sort of crunchy tactical monster book, how easy is it to run? And in most cases, I would say it's, a, I would, I would say it's, it's, a, it's definitely harder than the standard monsters that you're going to find for, for D&D. Like, all of the monsters have other things that they do. And all of the things that monsters do you're going to have to pay more attention to than monsters that don't. The fire giant in MCDM, the fire giant in Flea Mortal is definitely more complicated than the fire giant in 2014. Many people look at the fire giant in the 2014 monster manual and say it's, it's really boring, but it's easier to run. So particularly when you're running lots of monsters, that's where uh, things can get complicated. When you're running an adventuring party like Grave Order here, right? Every one of them has a different stat block. And what that means is not only are you running, uh, a whole group of monsters against the characters, but every one of the members of it has a different stat block. So if you have them facing the whole group at once, you got to have a lot of different things for a lot of different stat blocks all at once. And that could be, that could be pretty hard. That could be pretty hard to run. So there's definitely an order of complexity to this that advanced dungeon masters may be able to handle really well. I'm, I don't, I mean, I'm an advanced dungeon master, but I don't focus a lot on stat blocks and I miss stuff all the time. So I think it would be pretty hard for me to run a group of five different stat blocks in one game. I think that that would be a particularly crunchy game. Some GMs definitely want that. They definitely can do it and it's here for you. But that, that level of complexity is going to be, is definitely going to be there. So who should buy this book? If you're going to buy this book, who, who, who should pick it up? And the answer is if you are a, if you agree with the philosophy of the book that vanilla monsters for 5e are 
typically pretty tactically boring. You're looking for more interesting, tactical, crunchy mechanics for your monsters. This book is definitely for you. If you're looking for an extremely well-balanced, well-tested set of monsters to throw against your characters, if you want a different take on these kind of monsters, if you want a bunch of new monsters that you haven't seen before that you want to bring in, I think it's very hard to find any book that's going to be better at it than this. It's really fantastic for that book. It's definitely focused on that. If you are looking for, if, if ease of use is your primary goal, this might not be the book for you. It's also a high price book, 40 bucks for the PDF, $70 for the physical version plus shipping. It's a, a bit costly. So you have to, you have to bring that in mind as well. But if you agree that 5e monsters are boring, this, this, this is definitely, this is definitely your book. It is not a replacement for the monster manual, however. I will definitely say that. So I asked a bunch of people on Patreon what kind of questions they had. So I thought we'll do a quick lightning round where I will quickly answer some of these these final outstanding questions. Where does this book sit in the combat takes too long discussion? I don't think it's going to help it. I think if, you, if this this is definitely a book for people who don't mind combat taking a while because you're going to have crunchier tactics, you're going to have crunchier combat, which means probably battles are going to take longer. I don't think that there's a way you could look at this and say that battles are going to run shorter. The only difference might be because of minions, you could have a lot of monsters that can die really quickly. That could definitely go fast. How's the art? The art is absolutely gorgeous. I mentioned that before. The art is second to none. What are a couple monsters you think are better in this book than any other? So, I mean, the only one I can really speak to is the vampire, and the vampire is definitely better, but of course I'm going to say that because I'm the guy who wrote the vampire. But the vampire is really well designed. But I would say all of these monsters run really, really well. I don't know, other than their complexity, I don't know that I would say any of these monsters are going to not run better than the 2014 versions of the monsters that they have. And you certainly have more variety. I ran the goblins, for example, and the goblins were a lot of fun. I just had a bunch of goblins that I ran in a game, and I'm like, well, I'm going to use the MCDM goblins. So I think that... I mean, better is very subjective. And uh, that, that complexity dial is definitely... Uh, a factor. I haven't run them all. It's not like I've used the book for two years. So I can't say, oh, well, when I've run it, this, this one was always better. But there's definitely so much rigor that's gone into this that I would say, if you're into what I have described, you're probably going to like it a lot. Uh, can I use this book for a wide variety of usage? Yes. Boss fights. Yes, absolutely. Different monster types and mobs. Yes. You can use it for all those different things, right? There's nothing that's limiting uh, how these monsters are going to be used in your book. Uh, I didn't see anything even, even in Theater of the Mind. I don't think that there are design ideas in this that wouldn't work in Theater of the Mind. I didn't find a lot of them where like you're moving in particular directions or things like that, but I didn't, I haven't looked too hard. I think the expectation is you're going to be running on a grid, but I didn't see anything in the book that said you can't run Theater of the Mind. I tend to feel, though, that those GMs who like running in the theater of their mind are not looking for super tactical monsters. They're, they're usually looking for monsters that can fit the story that they're running. So if you run a lot of theater of the mind, this probably isn't the book for you. Not because it can't work in theater of the mind, but it's probably not. The, the philosophies probably don't match up. Can I use it in conjunction with other books? Absolutely. There's no reason you can't use monsters from this and other ones. Somebody asked, like, how do you use it alongside Forge of Foes? Well, I'll tell you. One, one way is that I can basically take a monster from this book that's going to be my big focus centerpiece monster, where it's all tactical and super crunchy and then i'm going to use the forge of foes quick monster builder to build a bunch of the smaller monsters that are super simple to run and super easy to run because i don't have to worry about the stat blocks for those they don't have a lot of powers they just move around and attack stuff and i can improvise those really easily but then i can focus my attention on the big crunchy monster from fleet mortals so i think that there's ways to do that where you say like i'm going to use the simple monsters from these other things but i'm use the fleet mortals versions of this other one i think that 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 really works so yes you can use it in conjunction with other books are the monsters set up in a way that makes them easy to run it's not bad like it's certainly the design of the book is intended to make you run them but again they are tactically complicated so easier to run the only thing that makes them easier to run is to remove abilities and if you're removing abilities you're removing some of the philosophy of the book so there's nothing that makes it bad one thing is like they they definitely don't 
use spell effects they don't they don't expect that you know all the spells they definitely went with the idea of like the monster stat block and the descriptions that are on the page are all that you need to run the monster you don't have to reference something else so i would say that in that in that book they've definitely made it easier to run does the book actively help you choose appropriate monsters i don't really know what that means there's certainly lore that's there you certainly have the tables that can help you sort it's a little i don't know i don't know exactly how to answer the idea of does it make it help you actively choose appropriate monsters i don't know how any of the books do that does this book make you excited to run these monsters? Absolutely. How do they match up against other books? Harder hits, tankier. They are pretty beefy and they'll hit pretty hard. But again, they were well tested. So, and they were well tested against advanced groups. We are talking about MCDM fans who are the primary playtesters. So these are people who really know how the game works. They really know how to run their characters. So I would say that these, these, these are probably hitting strong. I don't think they're going to be overly strong. I don't think they're going to TPK. Apparently the kobolds TPK'd a lot of people. Apparently my vampires TPK'd a lot of people. But generally speaking, I think that they, they should be very well balanced. Are they reusable versus stand, standout single use? Absolutely, they're reusable. I don't see any reason why you couldn't reuse them. Value for the money? That is a question you have to ask. $70 to me is different than $70 to other people, which is different than $70 to other people. How much you think you're going to want to use this book? You know, would you just buy it as like something to check once in a while to, as a reference? Or is it something that you like and you want to use and you want to drop it in? Again, there is a free sample of this book that shows you the kinds of monsters that you're going to get that was available on the Kickstarter. So you can see directly what kind of monsters you're going to see in this book. If you want to check that out, I will link to that in the show notes. But I would say that's a question you have to ask yourself based on what kind of GM you are, based on how much you want to use it in your game based on what you're looking for how do my vampires end up really awesome i love my vampires to death they're they're the best version of the vampire i found in fifth edition of course i would say that but i really think a because i wrote it so i built them the way i want them to work but b they were also super tested and well published so there's some really cool vampires crunch versus lore homebrew ready to run standalone versus part of the system i think i kind of hit a lot of this they definitely go more towards crunch i didn't really read much of the lore so i can't dive into like how good the lore is there is lore in it there is descriptions of what these creatures are like in the world that they are running there isn't anything that ties them directly to like matt colville's world although a lot of the named monsters are coming from matt colville's own personal campaign so there's a bit of that but they're very easily reskinable into any kind of monster that you want to use so i wouldn't worry about that so i think that they definitely are work well they're definitely ready to run and i think they're not part of any larger system i think that is as very solid as a standalone book you don't need any of mcdm's other books you don't need to be playing in matt colville's world there's nothing like that you can you can use these in any of your any of your books how tied are the monsters to the lore is it just fluff or quite mechanical too definitely mechanics this is definitely the philosophy of this book was that the monsters should show their place in the world through the mechanics they bring to the game so the example here of kobolds seem to have a lot of roman roman legion feeling to them definitely and you will see that in the mechanics for those kobolds they definitely have every one of the monsters in here has a shtick that fits the theme of the monster that you run that's that's a big part of the design so in short kind of getting back to the main conclusion of this whole talk flea mortals is an absolutely outstanding book it is certainly one of the best if not i mean the best i'll 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 be straight the only book i think i hang on to more than flea mortals is the level up advanced 5e 
Monsters Menagerie. And the reason why is that one is a direct replacement for the Monster Manual. It also has the lore checks in it. It has sample encounters in it and has treasure in it for all of the monsters in it, which are really nice, lazy GM sort of things. The design of the monsters in the Monsters Menagerie are simpler than the design of the monsters in here, but they also don't cover the same set of monsters. So I think they definitely fit well together. If I was looking for a pure, tactical, heavy, bring some of the best versions of fourth edition into your fifth edition game, this is definitely an outstanding book. I think it's really, really good, and you should definitely check it out. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to a lot of different things, and we have a new patron hero tier. The hero tier is a $4 tier available to patrons, and the hero tier now has one feature that uh, heroes get that other patrons do not, that is not openly available, which is a thing known as Readings and Reflections. Readings and Reflections is a new weekly podcast that I do in which I take the most current Sly Flourish article, I read it out as a podcast, and then I do probably about seven or eight minutes talking about the article, talking about what went into it, expanding on the ideas of that article, talking about any feedback that I received in the days since that article was published, and kind of diving in. It's really a fun podcast to do. People have really enjoyed it, and I wanted to bring it up. A, a patron of Cyflers, Joe M., asked me, he says, I'm on the hero tier, and I enjoy the opportunity to listen to you and read further to discuss your articles in the podcast during my commute, which is awesome. Am I correct in the impression that you publish more articles than you will read out loud? And the answer is no. I, my, right now, my plan is every new article that comes out on the newsletter or comes out on Cyflers, I will also do this podcast version of it where I'll read the article aloud and I will dig into it more. So if instead of reading the newsletter or reading it on the website, if instead you, you are on a commute, if you're travel a lot, if it's just you're doing dishes, it's just easier for you to listen to a podcast form. Subscribing at the hero tier of the Sly Flourish Patreon gives you access to this new weekly version of my article, which goes beyond just the article. So instead of just being like a three minute read through the article, it is about 10 or 12 minutes where I talk about the article and then I talk about other thoughts, what went into it, the background. It's really fun to do and I really enjoy it. And I want to thank Joe for asking more about it and for helping me to clarify that actually, yes, it is every one of the articles so far that I put out on Sly Flourish also has a reading for it. And we're going to dive into more patrons from the September 2023 Patreon Q&A. This is going to be our final batch of questions for September 2023. And the first ones dive into Boss Monsters. So I want to bring it up because it ties right into our Flea Mortals discussion that we just did. And the first one is The Waiting Owl, who says, one In their newest video, the Dungeon Dudes propose a new boss mechanic. The boss has no standard action and in turn, but uh, always has an action after the player's turn, making the boss more dynamic to react to the players. I like the idea of the boss continually reacting to the actions of the characters. The, the dudes mentioned that the problem with this might be might make damage output hard to calculate, but I think the idea could be a great combination with your generic monster stat block table, especially the damage per round column, as an inverted damage pool that the boss can use each round. I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So that is basically how legendary actions work. The intent of legendary actions is that the monster can do a thing in between the turns of the other characters. I think in the long run, other than getting ganged up on, I don't know that matters that much. And even legendary actions, like, sure, they space out the damage, but because you're dividing the damage among those spaces, I mean, it certainly shakes up players' expectations of the monsters, but it also is this sort of other mechanical thing. And sometimes I just have the monster do all of their attacks on their one round, and I don't worry about it. Or if I'm creating a legendary monster on the fly, I'll just have it dish out all of its attacks on its turn, because it's the same amount of damage anyway. It's just, when are you doing it? Are you doing it between turns, or are you doing it on the, the monster's turn? I don't know that it matters that much. There are some other games that have had monsters that attack in between turns and do things. 
and where it does it in between. The other thing to keep in mind is that legendary actions are built around the idea of four characters. So if you have five characters or six characters instead, I don't think it's unreasonable to give them more legendary actions, one extra legendary action point per character above four so that they can do more legendary stuff in between those turns. And basically they can do what you're talking about, which is attack or do something in between each of the characters' turns. Matt G says, recently I read through Big B's and noticed that most, if not all, of the legendary monsters have no legendary actions. Why do you think Wizards is moving away from legendary actions, and is this a good thing? As a DM, I am not a fan of the change. I have seen this, and in fact, when I was looking at the recent Monsters Compendium 4 that was available on D&D Beyond, we talked about that before. These are the new Feywild-y kind of monsters, and they had some big monsters there too, and they don't have legendary actions, and instead have lots of big piles of reactions, and in some cases have more reactions that they can take in a round than just one so they react a lot i think we saw this with vecna as well vecna didn't have legendary actions and instead had a bunch of reactions and i think the idea is that that monster is acting more dynamically in the battle that instead of it just doing these things in between turns it instead is something is happening to it and then it reacts in turn something else is happening it reacts in turn whether that's easy or not i mean it's a simplification of the overall actions because it's just a reaction now the monster has more than one reaction Other monsters have reactions. Characters have reactions. So it's not this other action type. It's not this whole new action type. I expect Wizards is experimenting with it. I think that they're trying a lot of things out that as we get new books coming out, they try new things. We've seen this over monsters over the past two or three years where they went from like, okay, monsters have a spell list and you can just look up the spell in a book to we're taking some of their best spells and we're putting those spells in the ticks description to we're no longer using spells at all. And instead we're giving them spell-like actions that aren't really spells and so on, right? So we're seeing experiments with fifth edition monsters over the past couple of years where they're going to end up when it comes to the 2024 monster book anybody can say but it kind of doesn't matter because there's already so many other monster books that are handling in so many of their different ways if we have a particular style that we like we could just go grab that version of it and use it there's going to be so many different monster books out we get to pick the one we like so i'm not too worried about where that's going to end up how do i feel about reactions versus legendary actions i wasn't that hung up on legendary actions anyway I don't know. I mean, we'll see. And, and mostly I'm concerned about the individual monsters and whether or not they're holding up in battle. Are they easy to run? Do they fight at their challenge level? Especially for bigger boss monsters, can they hold up against a group of four characters? Or are they going to get completely destroyed by something like Force Cage? So I have other problems with legendary monsters other than whether or not they use legendary actions or reactions. On the topic of D&D Beyond and investing in VTTs, I had a couple of patron questions on this. Diobviousness says, after watching last week's talk show, this is a talk show from a, few, a little while ago, I noticed you were talking up Demiplane. While it's good that D&D Beyond will have a competitor, it has always seemed that your biggest issue with D&D Beyond was that Watsi is heading towards being digital only, and you've, rent, you, you've ranted, granted, time and again that if you buy digital on a platform, you don't own the content. That's not a rant. That's true. That's just the way it is, right? That's not that's not me making an opinion. You're renting, you're renting your stuff. You're building a house on leased land. Time and again, they buy digital on the platform. You don't own the content and it can be taken away from you at any time. That is true. That is absolutely true. If you can't download it and stick it on a USB disc and put that in your safe deposit box, you don't own it. And that's not, it's not a rant. That's absolutely true. 
They don't want to tell you that though. Oh yeah, well we could take this data at any time, but I guarantee you, you signed a license agreement that says they can. Now that Demiplane appears to be selling digital content on behalf of third-party publishers, how are they any different than DD Beyond? You are still buying digital content on their platform that you still don't own and any any more than you do on DD Beyond. One might even suggest that on this particular point, Demiplane might be worse because at least DD Beyond is backed by the massive corporate money machine that is Watsi and Hasbro. Not throwing shade at Demiplane, but if the ownership of digital content is a problem, it doesn't appear that Demiplane is any different. And it actually is worse. So yes, all this is true, except for a couple of things. One is that isn't my main concern, <laughs> right? My main concern in there, there's, I have multiple concerns when it comes to D&D Beyond and the monopolization of digital platforms for role-playing games. That is one of them. That is one of the big effects is that you are buying content you don't own. But the other issue with D&D Beyond is that it is a, it is a practical monopoly that they own both the platform. And this was something that I lauded when they first bought it. When, when Hasbro bought D&D Beyond, I said, well, this makes the content that you bought on D&D Beyond very secure, which is absolutely true. Because now that's the strongest platform to get D&D stuff. Because you're pretty sure they're not going to take down their own books. They might modify those books, which they've done. But they're not going to take down those books. Where if they were licensing out D&D stuff to Roll20 or to Fantasy Grounds, they can pull those licenses back. And that's true as well. And that is one of those like the little candles. Like, are they going to do that? That to me is what Wizards is behaving badly if they pull their licenses from other platforms. I, that's my opinion, right? Like that, that is a rant. Because you say, well, from their business, it makes perfect sense. And like, yeah, it might, but it still sucks for us and still sucks for the hobby. And that's what I care about. So, so, so I have different issues than just this. And part of it is when Wizards owns both the, the, the number one or, or maybe number two, you could argue that, that with Roll20, that might be the second most popular VTT or second most popular digital platform for their work. I actually, I bet you that they are the number one for D&D. Since they are both the strongest platform and the number one content producer for it, and they're definitely driving to try to push more product and more people to that platform. They are creating a monopoly around just D&D Beyond. And I think we want to have alternative character builders and alternative tool suites and sets that we can go to when we want to play fifth edition. Now, it's unlikely you're going to see other licensees like Cobalt Press pull their material down from a platform like Demiplane because it takes a lot of money to even get it there. So it's not, you are, if Wizards of the Coast was to put D&D stuff on Demiplane, your Demiplane version of that material would certainly be more risk than if you got on D&D Beyond. But other material you're going to see on that platform is going to probably be more solid there because it because it exists there first. It doesn't exist in D&D Beyond. So there is that. So yes, I want to see competing, mu multiple competing solid character builders for fifth edition that I can choose from that let me decide which ones I want to use. But yes, absolutely. Is it a problem that if the platform goes down, you lose all ma your material? Yes, it's absolutely true. And there are some of these where you're like, hey, I know it's just a handful of people that are running the platform. If I spend a lot of money there and I buy a lot of stuff there, that platform could go away and I lose all my stuff and that is absolutely true too which is why it's so important to pay attention to my rant that the material you're buying on any of these platforms you are renting that material and it could go away at any time which gets to our next question brand m says with the release of the alpha of dnd beyond's maps what do you think is the safest bet for a new dm to spend money when they want to play online what is most important to yourself when choosing a vtt Personally, I've already spent hundreds of euros on digital books in Roll20, and it is a hard decision to make the switch ever. Maybe I'll never. I can't, I can't get some of the other books on D&D Beyond anymore. Yes. So if you're already invested in a platform, you might as well stick to it. 
If you're already on Roll20, I don't see a reason not to just keep going with Roll20. There is that risk. There is the risk that Wizards is going to stop supporting uh, Roll20 with their content, and they could theoretically pull it down. So what is safest? Having local digital copies of the material you need to run the platform. So one of the neat things with D&D Beyond is when you buy a, an adventure on D&D Beyond, you have access to the adventure there, including the digital maps. You can download those JPEGs of those maps, and then you can use those in any VTT. So yes, you could use them directly on D&D Beyond, but you could also use those maps on other platforms as well. You can use them in Albert Rodeo, which I've done many times. So I would say that D&D Beyond is, for, for Wizards of the Coast content, D&D Beyond is probably a better platform for digital material than any of the others because for a few reasons. One is you're pretty confident they're going to keep it there. They're not going to take it down. And two is you can download the JPEGs. So you can go there, you can find the map, you can download these high-res player view JPEGs and then import them into other VTTs, including Albert Rodeo, including Foundry, including Fantasy Grounds. But when you buy the module on these other platforms, Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds or Foundry or whatever, when you buy the module there, you can't download the assets. You, you can't download your own package of it and then say like, oh, well, I want them to use that map and I want to use it in a different VTT now. You can't really do that. So I would say that D&D Beyond is probably the safer bet but if you're already invested in a platform, then you can stick to that platform and it's okay. And you're going to get more features if you're used to how Roll20 operates with a pre-published campaign or a set of adventures or whatever, then you're going to get advantages to that than just a big pile of JPEGs, which is essentially what you get when you buy the version on DD Beyond. So I'm, I'm, I also, and you know, this is, I'm, I'm biased because I do get D&D Beyond stuff for free because I have a legacy account with them because I did work for them back, back a long time ago. And so I'm still getting access to the material there. So I'm not buying them there. And I don't know, like I would buy, I would probably buy them on D&D Beyond though, because I like Albert Rodeo. But if I was heavy into Roll20, I'd probably buy it on Roll22. But just remember the fact that you're renting it. You're not really buying it. You're buying a license that's as good as the platform is or as good as you want to be there, but you can't download it and move it to somewhere else. And that's, that's certainly an issue. So I think that that's something definitely to keep in mind. And now we get to some questions on running the game. Bro Fro, a mother says, I seem to have trouble with when to follow the improv story arcs with a published campaign. Everyone is having fun, but for the module to make sense, it wants to follow a certain route. When should I hold the pre to the pre-written story? And when should I let the improv at the table guide the story? The issue with following improv is the potential to make the rest of the published campaign story fall apart. So you have to decide when you're running a published adventure how closely you want to stay to it. And I've run a couple of adventures recently, Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands and the Gloaming, the Gloaming, which is sort of like adventure mini campaign setting for Shadow Dark. And they're intended to be run very loosely. And so you can let the players go off on their own and you can just deviate from what the book says and not care. And maybe they go back there. I'm running a game called Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands and they have not yet gone to the Shadowed Keep. They're already like fourth level. So... You know, they can they can kind of go off and do anything that they want anywhere that they want. And then it's more of like a campaign setting. I'm also playing Empire of the Ghouls and Empire of the Ghouls definitely has these like big stages that you're going to follow this. And I've had players say like, well, I guess there's no way for us to go forward other than do this one thing. And there kind of is that way. Right. And I can tell they're a little like I didn't really like doing that, but we had to do it because that's the only way we we're going to do this. If you told us it's the only way to go forward. So you kind of have to decide. And sometimes you're going to give it a good shove and sometimes you might let the adventure go. You have to look at the material you own, the adventure that you're running and decide how far you want to deviate from it. And some adventures are built for wider range of deviation and then other ones are really built like no we expect you're going to follow chapter one two three four and five and so on so you kind of have to you know you kind of have to figure that out on your own 
Chaz says, you're changing of gears and bringing your style of DMing to Shadow Dark and worries about playing Shadow Dark wrong. Got me thinking about what good advice doesn't work for you and your group. As an example, you seem to tone down a lot of encounters. I highlighted this because I don't think I do. But for some of my players, if not groups, if there wasn't a distinct possibility of character death, there'd be accusations of me ruining run, running a theme park rather than an adventure. So I think you're misinterpreting how I run my game. I definitely pile it on. I ran an encounter. I ran multiple encounters in my last Wednesday game that were more than twice the deadly threshold and I ran them to the ground. I did not pull back. I killed a character because they somebody didn't heal somebody in time in my Shadow Dark game. So I have characters that are dying. I have characters that are down a lot. I have players who are like, oh my God, that was hard. I threw a CR 19 demi lich against a group of CR nines when my own benchmark tells me they should nothing higher than like maybe CR 14 should have gone there. So I definitely bring I bring the pain, but I also know the dials that are there and I, I don't tune the dials. It's rare for me to tune the dials to tone down combat. Most of the time I'm tweaking the dials either because things should be a little bit more hard than they are or because it's time to end the battle early because we're getting bored. So why you turn the dials is very important. So, so that's one thought, right? Not, you know, A, I don't, I don't typically do it to tone down an encounter. I typically do it. I might tune an encounter when I'm like, oh, that would be unfair if it went that way. And it's just going to wipe them out. Not, not even like, oh, it would be hard or challenging, but no, it would just plain kill them before they could do anything. And that would suck. But I've run and I ran a battle recently a few weeks ago that everyone remembers where they faced this like incredibly powerful monster and didn't know until they started getting hit with disintegration rates. And like, we got to go. And they ran. Right. So no, I definitely do that. But what are the other, this interesting part of this question is what are the common sense advice that GMs give out or that GMs often embrace that I, I don't, right? And I think that's a really interesting niche. And there's a few. A focus on tactical combat. I talked about this during my whole Fleet Mortals discussion. I am not a tactical focused DM. My goal isn't to build tactically interesting battles that are fun to play out. My job is to build battles that make sense for the story and that are fun as part of a, the sense of the story. I don't do a lot of tactical combat. I don't really have good advice for tactical combat. That's not the style of game that I play. Building out the details of set piece environmental effects, something I'm poor at. I wish I did this more often where I have interesting environments with things that you can manipulate, but I kind of wait to the last minute to figure out what those are. And then I improv them. And sometimes they're not as strong as they could be as if I had an idea. Some people brought up, don't fudge that, 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 you know, you should never fudge. And I'm like, look, a, I'm, I, I, my, my argument for this is almost everybody does. A lot of times you have people who are like, let's just end up the battle right here. You're, you guys are going to just end this right now. We're just going to keep going forward. That's fudging, right? You're still fudging. I think I think play I think DMs always have their thumb on the scale. I think anybody who's like, no, I just run it as it is, is lying to you. I think that they're manipulating it in other places. They're doing things in other ways. They're the way they run it changes. There's lots of ways. I don't think that anybody isn't fudging. So if we are fudging, let's talk about where and why. And I think that that's important. But that is a common piece of advice. Don't fudge. Run it as it is. Be the hard DM, blah, 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 that I don't follow. That's another one. Probably killer DMing is not my style at all. And there's definitely some that are like, no, you need to be a killer DM. You need to really, like the environment needs to be hard. The game needs to be challenging, like you said. And you're not doing that. And that's not the style that I run. A five-room dungeon design is a big one. John Four over at Roleplaying Tips has talked about the five-room dungeon design a, a lot. That is not a philosophy that fits my idea of being able to improvise beats during the game. So many people love the 5e dungeon design idea and embrace it and use that often. And it's not a piece of advice uh, that I use. I know another one, an another one that comes up. And this is when we're like enough of my super smart RPG design friends have told me I'm an idiot that I'm probably an idiot, but I haven't given up on it yet, which is the idea of paying attention to player archetypes. 
you will see lots of different GM guides and lots of really renowned RPG designers talk about player archetypes, the idea of your your slayer archetype, your power gamer archetype, your story focused archetype, your, you know, all these different sort of archetypes. You know, you have your tactical gamer archetype, you have your treasure seeker archetype, your explorer archetype. And so like the Dungeon Master's Guide 2 for fourth edition has these archetypes. I think the Dungeon Master's Guide for fifth edition loosely talks about them. Robin's Laws of Game Mastering talks about these. And I don't find them useful at all. And the reason why is I think those archetypes are, are, are really interesting and on point until you actually try to apply them to actual players. And then you find out players don't fall into those archetypes. They don't fall neatly into those archetypes. And if they don't fall neatly in and they're kind of like, well, sometimes they're a bit of a power gamer, but other times they're a bit of a role player, then what good is it? Like, why not just instead of saying like, hey, you know, Jack is you know, 30% power gamer and 70% explorer. Why not just say, why don't I find out what Jack likes and I'll make my game, I'll build my ideas around what I know Jack enjoys. So the idea of the archetypes, I think they fall apart the minute you have five people around your own table, but lots of other people love the archetypes and find them really useful. I think that they end up building a false sense that you have a way of of, an idea of understanding what your players are going to bring to the table. And then they don't. And I've talked about this for years with, with friends of mine and have not come to a conclusion on it again enough people have spent time writing about this that they i think that you know they're probably right but i can't get there yet because i still feel like what's more important is just paying attention to the players that you have at the table Topher m says i want to run a protect the village adventure like you described in the lazy dm's companion most of those kinds of stories involve training or at least rallying the villagers to assist in defeating a much more powerful horde of bandits or whatever's threatening them do you have any advice for running such a big conflict without tracking what every villager is doing but still make the contribution mean something yeah story so i always go back to describe it in the fiction Yes, the way to do this and the, the, my, my approach for this is to treat it the same way. If you look in the same book on the Lazy DMs Companion under running like scenarios during war and conflict is what can be done in the background. What's sort of the scene in the background so that you can still keep your focus on the characters and what they're doing. So how do you put that in the background? And the idea is you can say like, well, because the character, because the players or the characters trained up the villagers to do certain things, keep track of which what things they've trained them to do, where that might take place, and then describe the results of that. And you could say, like, because you taught them how to fight with pitchforks and hoes, and because you may- maybe had them, you armed them with the weapons of the dead, they did a better job defending this part of the town. So they still have their things that they're doing, but you're still keeping the lens on the characters. So I wouldn't worry about the mechanics. Obviously, you could do things like, oh, we're going to roll a die and see how they do. You could do that if you want, but I think it's actually more interesting to describe the story of what's happening and reinforce the things that the players did or failed to do and how that affects the rest of the larger battle that's going on when they're doing something like defend the village. And you can do that for a lot of different areas of D&D. That's not just village defense, but also like wars in general. You know, what's the result of the actions that the characters took and describe the results. You don't have to describe them in a crunchy mechanics sort of standpoint. You don't need a big war game. You could just say the villagers managed, it was hard going, but because you trained them well in phalanx maneuvers, they managed to hold the western side of the village away from the bandits that were attacking from that. Jason B says, I'm running Rise of the Drow and I've gotten to a very sandboxy section where the party needs to free dozens of captives from a heavily guarded location. There are many ways they might go about it, but no way to predict. How do you adopt the eight steps in a situation like this? Things like fantastic locations, scenes, and NPCs can be a bit all over. 
The answer is that's exactly the way the eight steps are designed, that the eight steps are actually built. I, I often use the metaphor of imagine you have eight little dishes of content that you put out and you use those to cook the game at the table. And so you separate NPCs from locations, from monsters, from treasure, from secrets. You separate those things out because that way, depending on where the characters are going to go, you can shift and change these things around. Now, one of the things is like if you... Like in your circumstance, in your situation, you are building a situation that there's dozens of captives in a heavily guarded location. There's different ways that they could go in. You know what some of those ways are. You don't know what the characters are going to do, but your secrets are abstracted so they can still learn the secrets regardless of what path they can take. Your monsters are abstracted. So which monsters they might run into, either small groups or large groups, intelligent versus unintelligent monsters, those you can kind of shift and change around. The NPCs they run into, those NPCs can move around and the treasure they discover. All those different things are designed to be abstract from the way that the characters involve themselves in the adventure so hopefully by kind of digging in and reading and trying the eight steps from return you can see how all of those different components can help you run situations where the players get to take multiple different paths multiple different ways that they can go about it but you can still use the material you prepped to bring it to the table that's what breaks it away from like filling out entire big scenes and saying well in this location there's going to be these monsters this npc in this situation and then they never go there right instead of building that that way you instead say these are the kinds of monsters that are around the area this is the behavior that they follow this is where they might move to this is what they might generally see this is what the location is like these are the different ways in these are npcs that are wandering around this is the situation that they're trying to go so the situation-based role-playing is my favorite style and the eight steps are really built to help kind of support that Wraith Ward says, uh, I'm not one of those people who thinks that emulating Matt Mercer is the secret to success, but I still feel pressured to put on vast production value for a game, or I'm doing it wrong. Irrational, yes, but there's no changing that the current era of TTRPGs is one steeped deep in the frills of fancy battle maps, lighting, special effects, ambient audio, and so forth. I would love to provide those extra layers for my players, but as another visually impaired DM, I know this came to you recently, those steps just aren't feasible, and I struggle to get past that. The reception of Baldur's Gate 3 has only increased my insecurities. Watching people who never got it or don't didn't care suddenly latch onto D&D because the experience was finally presented them in a fully visual package. I definitely think you're overweighting the value of those production value things. I really, in my both in my personal experiences, in r- talking with lots of other GMs about this, in s- studying and seeing and diving deep in this whole world of tabletop RPGs for basically the last 10 years, my primary activity, like the last 10 years, I can tell you that that stuff is over, you're overweighting, you're overweighting that stuff. Players want to watch their characters do fun things. They want to watch their characters in the story do fun things. They, and that, that might be mechanical things that they do. It might be story fa- focused things that they do. I have a significant investment in Dwarven Forge tabletop setups that I use. And I can tell you the amount of extra value that that brings is maybe 10% to a game. I've, I've actually done some, a little bit of surveying on this and it comes to not only is it 10%, but a bad game with Dwarven Forge is still a terrible game. And a good game with Dwarven Forge is a good game. A good game without Dwarven Forge is also a good game. Good use of Dwarven Forge terrain. And, and I'm picking on that in particular because that is, it's got lots of 3d effects. It's got lots of different stuff. Maybe accounts for like a 10% improvement in the overall game. Maybe on a good day, if you really build the story around the environment and you use it a lot, maybe 20%, but it's not the main thing. And there's so much you can do. There's so many ways to make your game great that don't involve anything like that. And that is 
really diving into the characters. Spend your time thinking about the characters. Who are they? What do they want? What do the players enjoy? What do they want to bring to the game? What do they want to see their characters do? What kind of monsters do they like to fight? What kind of abilities do they have that they want to really see do neat things? What kind of treasure do they acquire? How can you tie into their backstory? How can you tap in? How can you make the story tied closer to their character and where they came from? How can you build those connections? All of these things have nothing to do with the AV description of it. I, I think that you are even overweighting it when you say uh, there's no changing that the current era of TTRPGs is one steeped deep in the frills of fancy battle maps, lighting, special effects, ambient audio, and so forth. I don't think that's true. There are some platforms that do that. Foundry has a lot of that kind of stuff into it. Roll20 has some of it. But there are many people who use all different kinds of things. A lot of times with like music, I, I just grab a phone and I'm like, I guess I'll play my, my, my instrumental playlist that's just got a bunch of video game soundtracks on it. I don't spend a lot of time on it. There are so many other things that we can do to make our game great that are going to have a far bigger individual enjoyment for each player that don't involve any of these special effects things. Now, you say it's an irrational feeling, so you know that this isn't exactly where it's going. But I think it's really important to remember. And to me, what I would do and what I have done is when I feel that way of like, oh, man, I didn't set up this thing is instead I always go back to like, who are the characters and what can I do that's going to be cool for them? If during your prep, in the beginning of the prep, you said, write down all of the character names, who are all the characters, and then spend a little bit of time thinking about their background and a little bit of time thinking about the mechanics of their character and say, what can I do for their character in this next session? What either can, is there a fun thing I could do from a combat perspective? Is there fun challenges that I can give them? You know, what are the things I can do? And it could be something as simple as they got a cloak of protection that protects them from cold. How can I have them get hit by cold damage so that they can enjoy the fact that they resisted cold? Stuff like that. I don't know how else to help except to really reinforce that all of the gigaws and doodads and widgets and special effects and music and lighting and production value stuff does not matter nearly as much as building an environment so that your players are going to have an awesome time in the story of your game. That is really where it is. The production value is just not that big a deal. I think Baldur's Gate 3 is an example. I'm playing through it now. And I think the fun, a lot of the fun of Baldur's Gate 3 are all of the different paths that the characters can take in the story. And watching their characters do cool things. I think, yes, it does have a lot of 3D effects. It's got a lot of sort of vertical vertical battle environment stuff. And half the time, that's a pain in the ass. Half the time, I can't see where my character is. Or I got to go walk up on those stupid rafters and my, I'm out of move speed again. So trust me, I don't think it's that big a deal. And that's the best that I can offer. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today where we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games. If you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff like this, the best way to see all of the stuff that I do is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. The link is in the show notes and you get a free Adventure Generator PDF and a free weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to the Patreon Q&A like you've seen. Reading, if you join at the Hero Tier, you get Readings and Reflections, my new weekly podcast. You get all kinds of exclusive features, dedicated Discord server, City of Arches sourcebook, tons of material to run your game. It's a really good deal. And you can go to the Sly Flourish bookstore and pick up any of my books including all of the Fantastic Adventure Bundle, the Fantastic Adventure Bundle, which includes Fantastic Adventures, Ruins of the Grendel Root, Fantastic Lairs, and Fantastic Locations, all in one big bundle for a bunch of money off. It's a really good deal. You can also pick up my other Lazy DM books there. That's all available on the Sly Flourish bookstore. You can find that in the show notes as well. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.